we need a victory of some sort. People are going to stop funding us. There's this pressure of like sort of taking the deal. We took it to our memberships and they're like, no, no way. This might help a few of us, but it's going to end up screwing my, my son or, you know, my niece. They have to live with the decisions that we make that ended up leading us to reject that bill, not getting anything past that legislative cycle. Welcome to the Be Change podcast. We're your hosts, Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. And I'm Warren Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. That opening quote was Aaron Tanaka. He's currently founder and director of the Center for Economic Democracy, but he's referring to a critical moment when he was director of the Boston Workers Alliance, and he refers to it as the rubber meeting the road. The question is, what happens when an organization needs to make that legislative win? It has that incredible opportunity, but it has a commitment to the members as the decision makers, and the members said, no, it's a bad compromise. And the stakes were very, very high. That bill, which was about reforming Corey or criminal offender record information, was not your ordinary bill. It was led predominantly by Afri African Americans who were trapped, unable to earn a living because they'd been incarcerated or had a criminal record, in many, many cases unjustly. So having them bring their compelling stories to the legislature for the first time and to also be decision makers in the final bill was fundamental to the integrity and outcome of the campaign. Welcome, Aaron. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And it's nice to see you after yeah, a number of years. It's been a while. As I think you might remember, I, I met you when you were founding executive director of the Boston Workers Alliance in 2005. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I know you've since co-founded the Center for Economic Democracy, and you've got so many other hats that it would take the entire podcast to go <laughs> through them. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now? Yeah, happy to. Um, so our organization is called the Center for Economic Democracy, and um, I was organizing for a long time, and that's when we knew each other. And for me, one of the biggest challenges was really the feeling that as a nonprofit social justice sector that we weren't actually saying the things that we knew and believed because we were afraid to. And what I mean specifically is we weren't talking about the depth of crisis of capitalism. And for me, a lot of the question was like, well, why are we scared to do this? And I think one of the reasons was because we depend on foundations and people are afraid of actually telling the truth and, get, and, and freaking out their program officers. And I think that's real. But actually, I, I think the, the deeper issue is that uh, we actually didn't really know what the alternative to capitalism could be. Uh, we know that state socialism, the Soviet style, was was not a model that we wanted to pursue. We saw how uh, inequality was getting deeper and deeper, how climate change was uh, intensifying, and, and now we're in total crisis now. And, you know, for me, I think practically, like so much, so many of us are spending time, like in the Workers' Alliance, trying to just keep people out of jail or help them get a job or keep people from getting evicted. And, and even though we understood that these were 
connected to the underlying economic system, um, it's hard to talk about that with someone who's going through acute crisis. And so for Center for Economic Democracy, that vision is uh, economic democracy. We, what we mean by that is that uh, everyone has the right as a community to collectively govern our resources or so land, uh, our collective capital and our labor, the work and the, and the actual work that we have to offer as human beings. And that instead of those things being controlled by a small group of capitalists and owners or a small group of uh, bureaucrats in the, in the government, that actually we as communities should get to decide how to use these resources to meet our own collective needs. And so for CED, you know, practically that means we're doing things like helping support worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, we see community land trusts, which are examples of communities taking land off of the speculative market, where, you know, in Boston we have a crisis where people are flipping housing and land and people are getting displaced. Well, we have the example of the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative that controls um, blocks and blocks of land and has made it permanently affordable, taking it off of the market, and actually allowed for the community to decide how they want to use it and who should live on the land and who should work on the land. And then finally, we have the Boston Ujima Project, which is the first democratically governed investment fund uh, in the country that we were able to launch last December after many years of planning. And the core idea is that our communities can pull our own resources, our own funding, find allies and partners outside of our community who see our vision, and actually enable for everyone to decide collectively how they want to invest that capital. Well, Needless to say, that's extraordinarily impressive. And if you would go back a little bit, you've got a really strong and powerful uh, analysis of, of what's happening in our communities and thoughts about how things should change. And where did this all begin for you? So I grew up in um, the East Bay in California in a town called El Cerrito. And my dad was a professor of Buddhist studies, and my mom was a piano teacher. Um, she came to the U.S. in her mid-20s. My dad is Japanese-American. You know, I think there's a perception of uh, Asian-American parents, uh, this kind of stereotype about being overly ambitious and strict with their kids, and I was definitely encouraged and supported and excelling academically, but what they often told to me was... Um, you know, you're going to have to work for most of your waking days as a person. So um, more than making money, try to find that thing that you feel is fulfilling for you. Uh, every night before I went to sleep, we had a small altar in our house, and we go ring a bell and put our hands together and clasp, uh, clasp hands and say, Namu uh, Amidabutsu, uh, thank you for a good day. Namu Amidabutsu is sort of the, the phrase that we use in Buddhism, and it means me and Buddha are one, and Buddha in this case, is meant to really represent not sort of an entity in the sky, but uh, represents like the entirety of, of the life force of like other people, practically the earth, the universe that supports us, allows us to exist. But also, I was taught some days is not a great day. Um, and so, you know, normally we'd say, Namu thank you for a great day. Sometimes when we're a bad day, uh, my parents told me that I could say, Namu thank you for a bad day. <laughs> and um, you know, I think that sense of gratitude was deeply ingrained in me, and I've always carried that sense of gratitude um, with me. And, you know, on another level in the Buddhist sort of context, like, so much of this is about interdependence and the connections that we all have. And so that this, this sense that, like, my success and my health can't be separated from other people was, like, deeply ingrained with me. It's interesting, interesting that you should raise gratitude as a, as a Buddhist theme, mm -hmm. but it's also in uh, sort of a sub-theme of this show, mm. which is positive psychology, mm -hmm. and uh, it's shown to boost people's self-esteem and also um, sense of meaning and place in the world. Mm. Um, 
So you you went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. It was really shortly thereafter that you became executive director. So maybe just briefly, sort of, how did that pave the way to mm-hmm. you know? To yeah. You know, so I, I, I was a high school class of 2000, and my first year in college, so I went to Harvard. I was the only kid in my school district that got in that year. It was a um, pretty big deal for myself and my family, and also just to leave, you know, this place that I grew up, to fly across the country. And, you know, honestly, I, I, by then I wanted to be a positive person in the world. I didn't really know what that was going to be. I thought it was going to be in politics, and that first year of college was the year that Bush uh, beat Gore. And I was just totally confused um, and pretty distraught and just sort of lost faith in the political system. I just couldn't understand how people would vote in that way. But I also had the saving grace of at the end of my first year, uh, there was a Harvard living wage sit-in. And some of my friends were in this of these 40 students who actually took over the president's office and ended up occupying it for like three weeks. And there was tents across Harvard Yard that us in solidarity were staying in. It was also appalling that in the wealthiest university in the world, that workers weren't getting paid a living wage. But um, that that show of activism sort of re-taught me about um, what was possible, actually that it wasn't the politicians that were going to save us, but it was the people in the communities on the ground who were going to use organizing and build power and direct action and, and inspire people that were actually going to hold these politicians accountable. And that really set me in a different trajectory, wanting to learn more about community organizing. I was really uh, fortunate. I had a friend, Kermit, a writer who's now a a law professor um, doing work around solitary confinement, but she was a year ahead of me and was volunteering at the American Friends Service Committee. You know, I had an interest in prison issues and prison reform and was with uh, some other students, helped start a student group called the Harvard Progressive Advocacy Group. And our whole premise was partnering with community-based organizations uh, and lending whatever time and resources we had as students to support their campaigns. And so I was uh, helping with the prison group and uh, ended up meeting two really influential people for me. One person was Jamie Bissonette. She comes out of the American Indian movement. She's a Native woman and um, really was informed by sort of that tr- tradition and, and was a really central mentor for me. And her co-worker, co-director of the program, his name was Kazi Ture. And Kazi was an alum of the Black Liberation Army, uh, spent seven years in prison, was in solitary confinement, uh, doing work against South African apartheid. And um, it was this weird situation where I had two mentors who were like actual revolutionaries, you know, like, uh, and then meanwhile, I'm going to school at Harvard and eating lobster in the dining halls. <laughs> and um, I remember Jamie send, saying to me early on when I was interning with her, you know, you guys as Harvard students are taught that you are meant to um, lead the world, that, you know, you're the future. Uh, and she said, if you want to work here and you want to work with folks coming out of prison and you want to be useful in this context, you actually need to learn how to take other people's leadership. And as a community organizer, you know, that's such a foundational and basic idea. And I actually ended up taking off a semester of college because I was so excited. Honestly, I was sort of struggling at this time with this, like, myth of meritocracy. On one level, like, you know, people are like, these people went to prison because they didn't work hard and um, they didn't go to school and they made bad choices and therefore deserve to be there. And then on the flip side, I was in this myth of the reason we're here is because we worked hard and we're smart and... um, we deserve to be at Harvard. And I started to see how that myth of meritocracy was actually the flip side of the coin that was justifying mm-hmm. uh, one of the justifications for mass incarceration. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out who I am at this point, but um, was very was very fortunate to get to take the time off because that 
really helped put me on the right path. It sort of got past all my existential angst. And I found myself in relationship with people in the community, getting to learn from these incredible mentors. Um, I squatted in the Harvard dorms for almost like a, a whole semester and a summer and snuck meals from the dining hall. <laughs> and my car, key card got deactivated for a while. But it was one of the it was a great sort of formative moment for me. And I'll say that the, a lot of those people who I met there ended up uh, positioning me then uh, after I graduated and received a fellowship to help start the Workers Alliance. The Chang Zuckerberg Initiative has funded that, and it's it's changed its name. But it was uh, a fellowship, gave me twenty five thousand bucks after I graduated to sort of do a public service project. There were three of us, I think, our year that were awarded it, and it was it was an incredible opportunity for me. I can't name all the amazing leaders and mentors that were there for me, but. They actually started me off doing three things that first year. So the first thing was called the Fund the Dream campaign. And, you know, this was 2005 um, and the Iraq war and Afghanistan war were both raging. And we were trying to build actually a multiracial anti-war coalition. So sort of trying to take a place that was mostly white peace activists and we're sort of building a framework talking about the prison industrial complex and we can't just talk, talk about bringing the troops home but actually need to talk about defunding the military and investing in our own communities. Um, the second project was teaching martial arts. I wasn't the teacher, but coordinating a martial arts program for youth uh, in the community to build, um, that's, you know, physical health and discipline and, and sort of building a, a cadre of young people who are, are sort of invested in the health and safety of their community. And then the third project was started off as this thing called uh, More Than a Paycheck. And the question was, how do we think about uh, we need to get beyond just like people trying to get a job, but actually changing the conditions of labor. And one of the areas that we saw was that there wasn't really a lot of support for unemployed workers and under, underemployed workers. And there was a sort of mandate for us to start seeing if we could build support in a community for uh, unemployed workers. And that eventually became the Boston Workers Alliance. And I'm just this 22-year-old kid who barely <laughs> really doesn't know what I'm doing, um, but you know, trusted in my mentors. And I think the key thing was when we started firing in Dudley, which is the main bus stop in, in Roxbury, and we were passing out these flyers, have you experienced discrimination because of your criminal record? Are you having trouble finding a job? And we were having these meetings at the local library. Like, people just started showing up. Um, and that, for me, was sort of this early indication that we were onto something, that there was a need in the community. And so that was sort of the basis for this um, for the following eight years. So moving from this in incredibly important need and mentors and people coming together to actually building an organization is, is a big leap. <laughs> and especially you had tremendous skills. You had learned about organizing. And, you, and again, you did have those mentors. But what was it like for you to actually build an organization? What yeah. You know, I was describing passing out like literally hundreds of flyers um, like every week in the in the bus stop. There was one piece that was just being consistent of being like every single Thursday, rain or sleet, we're in Boston. You know, I will be there and I'll have uh, I'll have some grapes and I'll have some chips. And you know, this actually became a thing. People would make fun of me of my poor snack selection. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'll be here. If you want to come and talk to other people, just come, you know. And honestly, that first year, I mean, I described people coming out in, in droves. Some weeks there was like two people there. And I'm like, man, am I, am I delusional? Is this thing even really a thing? But those folks, you know, would come back. And I, I, 
on my way over here, just started thinking actually about all the early founders. And so we had people like Timothy Hicks who passed away. Actually, honestly, I was thinking about like the six of our founding members have all passed um, uh, of maybe a group of 15 people. And I think that just, I hope it was, uh, you know, I learned so much from them. Yeah, please. Just a quick question about Mm -hmm. that, um, that they passed. Is is that a reflection of that there was this slightly older Mm -hmm. population that was, I don't want to put words in your mouth about their experience and Mm -hmm. what drew them to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think just practically, like the premise of our organization was people who had barriers to employment and particularly one of those key barriers was the criminal record system. We call it Corey in Massachusetts, as you know. And so, um, you know, I think part of it was a lot of our members who were coming in were folks who got in trouble or were falsely, for, for unbasis reason, got in trouble earlier in their life uh, and had either served their time or have sort of like fully attempted to move on. We're trying to just make it in the sort of economy, do the right thing. And we're getting the door slammed on their face everywhere they went from housing to employment to job training and all these things. And so, you know, on one level, I think we weren't necessarily dealing with people who are on their way into prison, for example, although we did our, obviously that's not an inherently separate group of people, but certainly our group was a little bit older folks who experienced these things themselves, but also maybe had kids who are now uh, experiencing incarceration and seeing how difficult it was for their kids to get jobs. And so, you know, it was kind of, we were a funny bunch. Like I'm this like 22 year old Asian kid in Roxbury, often like the only Asian person in a mile radius or something. Uh, predominantly black organization. Most of our folks were in their 40s or 50s, I think, and had life experience, you know, and this, they weren't all new to, um, this wasn't all new to them either. They've been around and, and had seen some stuff. And so um, that was really important of that leadership of the early group. I will say that like a lot of these people like passed on well before their time, you know, and I, th- and I honestly, I was, we actually lost someone, Christine McGuire this year, who is a pretty well-known volunteer in Dorchester. Yeah. And, and I, I, attribute that to just the the impact of um, racism and sexism and capitalism and just the the just the wear and tear um, and the exposures to toxic chemicals and all these things that create you know impact environmental conditions and um, I think rob these people uh, of years and despite everything people were giving their all like I met Tim Hicks you know he was at the time he was um, houseless but was a big-hearted person and would spend hours of his day walking the streets, passing out flyers, trying to get people to the meeting, just having conversations. And, yeah, I, I remember people like Stephanie Parrott, who is an older woman who is, like, pretty proper church lady, but who, for, for a messed-up reason, got a criminal record. And watching her go through her own experience of, like, finding power and telling her story, something that, like, people don't, you know, telling your experience of the the criminal justice system, it's it's often viewed as is something that you should be shamed of. And I think just to note, like this is sort of the broader premise of community organizing is helping people see how these these scars that they're carrying or these like horrible situations that they're put in and are dealing with on an everyday basis to move from like blaming ourselves and sort of internalizing these conditions. And actually sort of pulling our head up and looking around us and seeing that actually so many other people are in the same position. And then to actually learn together about what the systems and the root causes that are creating these conditions for all of us so that we're not ashamed and actually see the stories and the truth that people carry as part of the um, arsenal that we have to actually change hearts and minds over time. And so, you know, all of our members were amazing and brave 
And I will say that it was that just handful of really dedicated folks who were just willing to come back every week, pass out those flyers, and kept asking, you know, what else can we do? And that was really just like the pathway that we followed. Um, so we started just like meeting on a weekly basis. That led to then uh, us partnering with the Mass Law Reform Institute to start training our members and becoming what we call lay Cory advocates so that they can understand the legal intricacies of this system and teach people how they can assist others in sealing their criminal records. That then led uh, to us partnering with other organizations um, like the Union for Minority Neighborhoods and Epica and Worcester to actually build a campaign. And so, you know, that's that's a whole story in and of itself. But like a lot of it was just showing up, asking more questions and then trying to answer them together. For the listeners who are not familiar with this mm-hmm. work, can you say in a nutshell the impact uh, of Cory reform? At this point, this issue of the criminal record discrimination has become sort of an issue that people on, at least talk about, like President Obama passed an executive order um, that was ban the box, which means taking that question off of job applications um, that ask, have you been convicted of a felony, and, and removing that so people aren't screened out at the beginning. And he did that for federal federal jobs, for example. But yes, like at the time, this was, you know, we were starting in 2005. Um, people said that we were crazy. People, other people are having trouble getting jobs. Why, why would you prioritize these people, you know? And um, the reality was, you know, after the civil rights movement was able to end segregation, instead of... Um, treating people of color and black folks in particular as equals in the economy, the capitalist class decided to export a lot of those manufacturing jobs that previously men of color and and people of color were working in. And the criminal justice system was sort of built particularly to deal with this new class of unemployed workers. And then that same sort of prison system and criminal justice system was used to incarcerate, detain, deport uh, immigrant workers. And really the issue was that there wasn't enough work period in our communities. And the criminal justice system was used as layer to justify and get people to blame themselves for being unemployed. A lot of our folks actually were never even convicted of a crime. They had dismissed cases, cases they were found not guilty of. And those things were still prohibiting them from getting jobs. There are three big things we're working on. One was to remove that question from job applications, again, the ban the box policy. And we passed this policy uh, over a five-year campaign and became the second state in the country to ban the box for all private jobs. And sort of Hawaii was the one that did it 10 years prior, but we were really helped kick off sort of a national movement on banning the box across the country. Also at the time, if you had a felony, that stayed on your record 15 years from the time that you completed your sentence. And so that meant some people who did something when they were a kid and they had 10 years of probation, they're literally still paying for this thing 25, 30 years later. And then there are also people, the third piece was just actually taking these dismiss cases off of people's records. We know that policing is racist, that just because you got arrested for something doesn't mean that you did something wrong. But what was happening was even though the court of law exonerated you, those things were being used against people. And so this 80, 90 page criminal record reform legislation that we ended up passing was able to help people take those dismiss cases off of their record, to take the question off of job applications, and at that time to reduce the ceiling period by five years. So it was reduced from 15 years down to 10 years. So there you were, um, you know, starting off with handing out these flyers with this incredible group of people in the community, paved the way for this campaign. Meanwhile, you know, to be an executive director requires a board. It requires, I assume, fundraising. I don't Mm -hmm. think you were the only staff person. Mm -hmm. So if you could just share a little bit, first of all, about when did you become officially 
executive director and all of these roles, how did you learn them? Yeah, it's kind of scary in retrospect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's kind of, yeah, because I really didn't know what I was doing. I think I became the executive director like formally two years in, and I was the only staff person for the first two and a half years. Um, I had, you know, obviously the benefit of these mentors. I had the benefit of um, getting to take time off during college, the work in the organizing groups. A lot of the programmatic stuff I I didn't know, but I had intuition I had exposure to. Um, the nonprofit management piece was just honestly like um, trial by fire and like lots of fires all the time. Those first two years, I was Honestly, I was working probably 70, 80 hours a week for the first five years. Um, And then by the time I left, I was more like 60 hours and feeling like very luxurious. But I went to Southern New Hampshire University um, for a master's in science and community economic development. It was a very particular program where I was exposed to some of the basics of accounting and nonprofit management. I will say like in terms of fundraising, for example, like I had that 25,000 bucks that I got from my fellowship. I stretched that over the course of like 14 months or something. I was pretty much out of money. And then kind of just fortunate. I was asking, like, how do you do this? And different mentors said, these are foundations. You apply to them. They probably won't give you money, but you can try. And um, I remember getting a first $6,000 grant from a small family fund. And then eventually uh, got in front of the Himes Foundation, which is one of our largest organizing funders. And a gentleman named David Moy, who's still a pro- senior program officer there, he took a bet on us. It was a $20,000 grant, which is still small for them, but um, that enabled me to continue uh, doing the job. And then I think soon after, we started picking up a few other funders. After Himes sort of validated our value, I remember one of our yeah biggest milestones was getting to hire our first staff person, whose name was uh, Hakeem Cunningham. And um, you know, Hakeem came in as a volunteer, Grew up in Dorchester, uh, knew a lot about the community, had never necessarily done, you know, social services, nonprofit work, but he clicked with the folks right away. And, you know, all of a sudden it wasn't just me and there was a, a another person. And then soon after that, we would find ourselves like getting an office. And that was when things really started to sort of change for us because we switched from just like having weekly meetings to actually being a physical presence we trained to help people seal their records, order their criminal records, read them. And so by the time, you know, several years into having this office, uh, we had like five, 600 people walking through every year just looking for a support uh, out of the community. And then our strategy was to be a resource, be a safe place for people to come and look for jobs and get resources, and then to invite them into actually joining our weekly meetings to become part of the community organizing. Here's how you can step in and you can join the outreach committee, you can join the legislative team. I think the board formation was also a major piece for us. And so the commitments that I I picked up when I was in college around like really believing in the leadership of of people who are experiencing this stuff should be uh, making the decisions. And so... We took that to heart and we had a democratically elected board from our membership base. Um, Also, most of the people we hired into our staff were also coming out of our membership. And I think it both made us like really authentic and real. Just to give an example, like there was a point where we were three years into the legislative campaign and we're kind of like running up against a barrier because the judiciary chairman was just didn't want to release our bill. Um, Finally, after like we started like going to his district, which isn't where we were, and just started, like, blanketing the neighborhood with posters with his face on it saying, this guy's keeping you from getting a job. He actually did release a bill. Um, 
And for me, it was like, holy shit, this could actually happen. Uh, and it has some of the stuff that we've been asking for. But that bill also had a few really regressive things that um, would penalize people who are on parole in a different way. And, you know, honestly, like a lot of us who are, rep- who are the staff people at the organizations who are in this coalition, you know, I'm like, yo, we've been doing this for three years. We need a victory of some sort. Like people are going to yeah. stop funding us. There's this pressure of like sort of taking the deal. Mm-hmm. But for us and also Epica, uh, who is also, I think, very similar, they're based in Worcester and we're also led by predominantly formerly incarcerated folks. Like we took it to our memberships and we said, this is a deal. I think we should consider it. And for them, they're like, no, no way. Um, this might help a few of us, but it's going to end up screwing my my son or, you know, my niece or whatever it is. And it, it is that that truth that people carry because they have to live with the decisions that we make that ended up leading us to reject that bill, not getting anything past that legislative cycle. But then, you know, two years later, after reintroducing the bill, uh, we ended up getting much, much more than was offered to us and without this sort of regressive uh, penalizing parts of the policy. And so for me, you know, those are the actual moments where like this theory about accountability and leadership hits that rubber, you know, meets the road. But like none of us had really ever done the job or the roles that we were in, like literally. (laughs) So like I had never been an ED, our organizer never organized, our office manager has never never worked in an office. Um, I think some of our board members, a couple of them have served on other boards, but for the most part, like we were all sort of making it up as we went. And, you know, it led to a lot of, I'll, I'll honest, I think like a lot of it was just like, we were really close in with each other. We were a deeply tight knit group and spent a lot of time together. Um, we were very powerful and also had like um, oftentimes levels of dysfunction that were really difficult. So you know, one of my biggest lessons was actually like, people carry so much trauma in our lives especially if you're someone who has been incarcerated or you you know you've had a family member stripped away from you um but just also just being like a person of color and being working class or poor in the city like you're experiencing violence all the time uh having to defend yourself from all kinds of threats and so i saw like the ways in which trauma and i would argue sort of internalized oppression were playing out in our governance level so just an example i'll give is we would have sometimes have conflicts around like, you know, people were volunteering a ton of their time to be on the board or to be members. Um, So then when we're talking about giving staff raises and, you know, the staff comes out of the same, like the staff that were hired were also formerly volunteers like everyone else. And now they got a job. Other people don't have work. And so then we're talking about raising the wages. People are like, well, why would we do that? We should give more stipends to ourselves. And, you know, and it's like it's a very valid and fair perspective operating within scarcity mentality, which was Honestly, that's what it felt like for me, too. And it was this weird thing where I came out of this, like, bastion of privilege of Harvard, just knowing the level of wealth and access that's out there and just feeling like, even though I have that badge that carries me, like, this context that we're in, like, we were just barely scraping by, um, both myself financially and economically, and certainly my members were dealing with a lot more. So, you know, I think that we, we all learned a lot. That's an issue that a, a lot mm-hmm. of organizations face that mm-hmm. have members that are um, on the board mm-hmm. and volunteer and then, you know, hiring from the, from the base. Mm-hmm. How did you tackle that problem? How was it resolved? Or maybe it was never resolved. Maybe it was just a, an ongoing issue. Yeah, I don't 
I don't think it was ever really resolved. I mean, we started providing stipends for uh, volunteers, and we did actually end up hiring uh, a couple people who weren't straight out of the membership. You know, just like we had a little bit more kind of diversity in perspectives and experience, but even those folks, like... Honestly, like we just couldn't pay very much either. It just wasn't even practical for us to find someone who really could step in and knew what they're doing and hit the ground running. And so, you know, the reality was that I left the organization after eight years and the organization ended up folding about three and a half years after I left. And I think part of that was because we were kind of setting ourselves up to do this incredibly difficult work without the diversity of skill sets. And in some ways, I I think back on it, and I mean, I was just doing what I thought we were supposed to do, which is build these organizations and put people in leadership. But it's also like, if you want to do that, you need to invest much more in supporting and leadership development, even though we're doing it. Like, I often felt like there's this sort of pull between trying to do the campaign work and pass the policies versus actually just like making sure everyone was in right relationship and that people had the necessary support to be their fullest self in the organization. And, you know, honestly, for me, like, that was one of the biggest lessons, kind of what I started talking about earlier was just, like, that piece of the internal healing work, the leadership work, the relational work. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that resulted in us having uh, a powerful and important history, but ultimately not lasting. So if you could do it over again, um, what would you do more of? Well, I mean, you were mentioning trauma and... Mm-hmm. Uh, healing, mm-hmm. um, would would those become higher priorities for you or would they take you off mission? Um, no, I think they would be higher priorities. Even when I was there, we formed a partnership with the only black-owned uh, uh, mental health clinic in the state and we were doing sort of referral stuff. But it was, you know, that is a very like, st- although it's culturally appropriate, care was like still individualistic and sort of medicalizing, right? And like, I think it's a sort of difference between like, I heard someone distinguish between self-care and collective care. And so I think, you know, the really the thing that's really different now, honestly, is like there's a whole framework and sort of nonprofit movement space around healing justice, for example, now, which wasn't the case uh, even when I left the Workers' Alliance in 2012, right? Like that was, but I, but I was really clear that like that actually needs to be a much larger part of our work. We need to address the heart work in addition to the head and body. Well, and that's actually, you know, a key part of this podcast discussion as well is, um, you know, you mentioned working 78 hours a week and what that does to, I mean, certainly your your whole community was, was working hard and had plenty of trauma, mm-hmm. but just speaking from a leadership perspective mm-hmm. about what that does to you and yeah. the sustainability of it. Um, and it's uh, in some ways ironic or maybe not that you, you started us with talking about this this Buddhist practice that you had in your family. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you've been able to do for yourself to keep you sustained in this very challenging mm-hmm. environment? Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I left the Workers' Alliance, I was like totally burnt out. On one level, we had accomplished many of the things that we set out to do, but I also, it just wasn't generative for me anymore. And so... I mean, I actually ended up becoming a line cook at a at Trace Gatos, which was a uh, tapas restaurant in, in in Boston. I was working um, part time as a dishwasher and line cook, and then actually the other part of my time, I had a contract. I was a lead organizer for 
the participatory budgeting process in the city of Boston, which means that residents get to vote on the allocation of their tax dollars. So I was basically doing this really cool sort of broad-based democratic planning process with youth, um, like three days a week, and then was cooking three to four days a week. I didn't have weekends, but um, I was pretty happy, I will say. Like, it was just, like, really exhausting, but, like, exhausting in a regenerative way instead of this depleting way of being, like, coming home after 14-hour shifts and being, like, tired in a good way (laughs) instead of tired in a way that I want to cry sort of way. Um, You know, it's a privilege to get to choose to do hard manual labor. Um, And so I don't want to sort of glamorize it in this, like, sort of hipster sort of way. But honestly, for me, it was it was a, a craft that I got to build something that I really care about and got good at um, and was just like physically satisfying for me. I was drawn to the opportunities to actually help create something new. And so in a lot of ways, like I don't work quite as much, but I still work a lot. We're in this place of like engaging with folks around the future that we want to build instead of just trying to defend our positions that we're not even pleased with in the first place. And so I think that has been actually a major shift that's sort of enabled me to move into this sort of second phase of my career. Um, Well, that was, this was great to be able to, to hear your incredible experience. And I think a lot of people will find it it resonates with, with their experiences. So I really appreciate having you. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio. (laughs) 